today on the Energy Podcast. When this is becoming really the global way of mobility, finally, we really need to be sorting out uh, public charging. Through deliberate planning and innovation and organic growth, we're going to have chargers where we need them, when we need them, and we'll have a cleaner, more sustainable, equitable transportation system. There could be little denial that the electric vehicle revolution is upon us. According to the International Energy Agency, sales of electric vehicles, or EVs, exceeded 10 million worldwide in 2022, and the global market is predicted to grow even further this year. This is good news for the nations relying on widespread adoption of EVs in helping them to realise their climate ambitions. If global carbon emissions are to reach net zero by 2050, in line with the Paris Agreement, there will need to be 300 million EVs on the road by the end of this decade. Such rapid growth intensifies the need for EV infrastructure, namely access to reliable, affordable charging. Ensuring that EVs match the cost and convenience of running a conventional fuel vehicle is crucial, not just for existing owners, but also in convincing more drivers to make the switch. Governments and businesses across the world are grappling with the infrastructure challenge created by the EV boom, with varying degrees of success. Hello, I'm Julia Streets, and today on the Energy Podcast, we ask, are roads ready for EVs? With me to discuss this are Elizabeth Connolly, Transport Analyst at the International Energy Agency, Lucy Matera, Secretary General of the Infrastructure Industry Association, Charge Up Europe, Ingrid Malmgren, Policy Director at Plug in America, and Shell's Executive Vice President for Mobility, Istvan Capitani. So I'm delighted that you're all with me today. And Elizabeth, when you think about EV infrastructure, what's the global outlook? One thing to note about charging infrastructure right now is that most charging of electric cars occurs at homes, but a lot of the attention is around public charging, of course, because this helps enable people to own EVs that don't have access to home charging. Looking at the picture today, worldwide, there are about, we estimate, 17 million home chargers for electric vehicles, and that's compared to about 3 million public EV chargers. In terms of who's leading the way with charging infrastructure, you know, I don't want to say any one country is doing better or worse because I think it really depends a lot on the setup of homes and whether people are living in detached homes or in multi-unit dwellings. So, for example, in the U.S., I think around 80 percent of EV owners live in single family homes. And so it's really easy to charge at home and there's less kind of pressure for there to be public charging infrastructure, at least in these early stages. While on the other hand, in China, only about 50% of charging occurs at home. So I think, you know, there are factors that make it, you know, very different across different regions around what is kind of the right level of public charging infrastructure. For example, China accounted for 50% of electric light duty vehicles last year, but 65% of the public charging infrastructure. So, you know, I think in that way, China's leading, but I think there's also factors that make it you know, kind of need to be leading in terms of public charging. I've heard some people talk about having quite deep-seated concerns about what they might call range anxiety in terms of will you be able to get the mileage, the kilometerage that you're looking for? 
Sure. So at least in terms of cars and I think trucks as well, you know, range anxiety is a real concern. We see automakers in the car industry and I think also in the truck industry really looking at how they can increase EV range, especially in ways that maybe don't require larger and larger, heavier and heavier batteries. And so thinking about these kind of in-route charging, whether it be highway fast chargers like we've already seen across highways around the world, or thinking about for trucks in particular, rest stops, how long the rest time is and building in infrastructure that can facilitate charging in whatever amount of time. I think the U.S. and the EU have different regulations on how long driver breaks should be for these long haul trucking segments. And so really thinking about how the operations need to work in order to design kind of the adequate infrastructure in a way that could help reduce as much as possible the power demand on the grid. And Lucy, from your point of view at Charge Up Europe, what are your thoughts? So on range anxiety, what we are finding that this is a factor that is less prevalent today in terms of sort of slowing down the switch to, to EV charging. There was a recent consumer survey that was commissioned by the European Commission. And what they found as the primary obstacle for the switch to EV was actually the price of the car rather than the range anxiety or the lack of infrastructure. So in terms of what came up first as an obstacle for a driver that's considering the switch to e-mobility that was firmly um, on the top of the uh, of the list. Ingrid, what do you think? I think that with regard to passenger vehicles, since so many people charge at home in the United States, for most people's day-to-day driving, range anxiety is not a huge issue. Most people drive around 30 miles a day and new EVs have ranges well over 250 miles a day. So many people only need to charge up every several days or once a week. Isvan, can I bring you in here? How important in the big debate about whether a motorist will make the switch to EV is the question of infrastructure? It's very, very important. And we are already charging in 30 countries uh, in the world. So we are uh, pretty much one of the biggest uh, operators in terms of the reach. The United States is very different than China. So in China, we have already well over 20,000 public chargers. Most of the people, of course, are not having the ability to charge at home. So we really need to be catering for that uh, immediately. In the United States, in different parts of the United States, you have the picture very different. And in Europe, we just did a survey now, whilst uh, a year ago, it was uh, basically 33% of the people who didn't have charger at home. This is now 44% of the people who are driving EV cars do not have charger at home. And why is it happening? Of course, the early after the early adapters, it is becoming more and more mainstream activity, which is great. You know, we see that people are buying this for commuting and therefore public charging is becoming a very important part of this equation. At the early stage, many people thought, oh, it's going to be all home charging. It is just not possible. We are in 84 markets and uh, 90% of the people who fill up a shell wouldn't be today with electricity or with fuel, but wouldn't have an ability to charge at home. So when this is becoming really the global way of mobility, finally, we really need to be sorting out uh, public charging. There's a huge element here about the growing availability of charging needed in convenient locations, whether from forecourts and streets to workplaces, retail car parks. And I just want to pick up on this because we're going to take a quick trip to Germany, where Carlo Kumpelik, Shell's network delivery manager for Germany, Austria and Switzerland, has been at an EV charging site in Berlin. 
I stand here in Berlin at Conrad Wolf Street at the parking lot next to the River supermarket. River is one of Germany's leading food retail companies. This location is the very first River supermarket where we installed our recharge charge posts. In the beginning of this year, Germany crossed the magic number of over 1 million fully electric cars registered in the country. The German government expects 15 million electric cars on the streets by 2030. With this number of electric vehicles growing, our aim is to enable as many people to drive as many electric kilometers as possible, whether that is at home, at work or on the go. Reva opened their shops at our service stations in the Czech Republic and in Austria. In Germany, Reva asked us to deliver a fast charging experience for their customers at Reva supermarkets and penny discounters. Currently, we already operate our charging solutions at 10 supermarkets and uh, we plan to install Shell Recharge charging posts at a minimum of 400 Reva supermarkets and penny discounters across the whole of Germany. Carlo Kumpelik. And I suppose one of the things that we're thinking about is we talk about private charging and we talk about public charging. I'm wondering about almost what you might call municipal charging. I'm really curious, will we see some infrastructure innovation in terms of roads and road infrastructures, almost like the railways providing some charging capability? Elizabeth, I'd love your thoughts on that. Sure. You know, so I think a lot of the conversation around charging infrastructure has tended to be about light duty vehicle charging. But obviously, electrifying trucks is, I think, much more complicated and will require some kind of new innovative solutions. And so in addition to the traditional box cabled charging points that we've been talking about, you know, I think particularly for these heavy duty vehicle segments for long haul trucking or or even just medium sized delivery trucks, there could be a place in the future for electric road systems. So that could be either wireless inductive charging built into the road, or it could be something that is, you know, kind of a, a throwback where we have overhead cables that you've seen in kind of trolley buses of the past. You know, these things can help reduce demand on the grid from cabled charging and spread out the the power demand over the journey of the vehicle, extending its range uh, without needing these megawatt scale fast chargers. So I wonder if we could change the conversation and look at it from a slightly different point of view, which is the obstacles, the hurdles to infrastructure, because this ultimately really matters when it comes to adoption. Ingrid, where do we see the biggest hurdles? The big issue in the United States is for charging for people who don't have access to home charging, people who live in multi-unit dwellings or multi-family dwellings. It's not just an accessibility issue because it's far less convenient. But it's also an affordability issue. For people who can't charge at home, they need to use public chargers, which typically cost between three and four times as much per kilowatt hour as your home charging rates. It's definitely a cost issue. So there's definitely an equity issue there. And that, I think, is the biggest hurdle that we're facing right now, particularly in cities. Obviously, the distance between chargers is an issue and having access to public charging in places where there's far less demand for it. That tends to be the issue in rural areas. And then there's always an income issue. So if you rent in the country and you don't own your home, you're less likely to be able to install a charger. 
you'd have to get permission from your landlord. You wouldn't be able to recoup that money. So the income issue definitely can be exacerbated. I think EVs could go either way. They could make transportation more equitable, or if they're not implemented well with charging, it could make it less equitable. Lucy, I'd love to hear your thoughts about where some of the hurdles may exist. In Europe, you will find some similar difficulties. As Ingrid mentioned, it's about how do you make it a little bit more democratic for people who do not live in detached house, but in multifamily buildings. And you have examples of good practice across Europe to basically make that easier. In France, you have a right to plug. Basically, a tenant in the building can request to have a charging station installed, you know, in the building. You can also, you know, prescribe some electrification requirements for buildings that are being renovated so that it doesn't cost a fortune when you come in as a new you know, tenant to get your EV charge at home. On the point that you were making in grid, indeed, um, the infrastructure will go where the demand is. And so you will have some of that imbalance between areas where you have a lot of EVs and areas where you have fewer EVs. The way Europe is trying to address that is by setting targets by law. So those targets are both capacity-based and distance-based. So they are dynamic, which means they will increase over time as the uptake of EVs increase. And again, you know, as the number of EVs on EU road increases, you'll see more charging infrastructure. But it's, it's adding to that a distance-based target, which means you need to have enough infrastructure at a reasonable distance. And they've said that both for HDVs and for ADVs, and that's coming into force next year and hopefully we'll address some of the difficulties or sort of um, inequality in the spread of EV charging infrastructure we're seeing today across Europe. Isvan, I'd love to get your thoughts on what are the main issues for businesses like Shell? I see three main issues with EV for the society to deal with. One is it has to be available. Really need to be giving and offering uh, all the support for the different kind of commercial ventures to build out. We order now more EV chargers as Shell mobility than petrol pumps. That always uh, surprises people. So we are obviously great believers of uh, letting the business to make sure that it is becoming something which is a commercial venture, that you can make money out of it. Because if you build a system up on regulation too much, it's not going to be effective and not efficient. Therefore, it has to be commercially oriented. It has to be reliable because that's our main job to make it a reliable experience for customers. I was recently in a conference and I asked them, put up your hand if you had a problem with filling up with petrol. Nobody put it up. Fill up your hand if you had a problem with uh, uh, using a public charger. Almost everybody put up their hand. And finally, it has to be investable. So it has to be a business case which is making it profitable. Because if, if you're not able to make this business profitable at a normal price which people can afford, it's going to be very difficult to maintain. And I'd love to bring in Elizabeth at this point. From a public sector versus private sector point of view, what more can policymakers and businesses do to help? Sure. Well, I think, you know, I'm not going to say regulations are bad in this case. There can be carrots and sticks. But I think, you know, policymakers can do a lot to help ensure that there will be a business case. So take, for example, the EU's alternative fuels infrastructure regulation. This is basically saying we need a certain coverage of charging infrastructure, while at the same time, they've passed CO2 standards that are really pushing forward zero emission vehicles, including electric vehicles. So it's taking it a kind of comprehensive approach, a suite of policies that help build demand for charging, as well as putting in place metrics for 
for how many chargers there need to be to ensure certain levels of utilization and, you know, of course, ensure that the drivers are able to recharge their vehicles. So I think policymakers play a big role in helping push businesses to deploy infrastructure, invest in different types of infrastructure. And so I think, you know, taking this really comprehensive approach, we've seen it not just in the EU, I think more recently with the IRA in the US, China's been doing it for ages. We've seen it in India with uh, different schemes there. I think a lot of countries are really seeing how this works well. And I think it's something that can really complement businesses as well. And Isfan, can you give us some examples of where you think businesses and policymakers are working well together? Oh, I think uh, the examples that is what used are, are very, very good examples. So basically, uh, to provide a policy framework is fantastic. And you use the example of the United States, the European Union, and it is really good because this is basically incentivizing you to do the job. Where really business should be coming in is that then the, the playing field should be really leveled and we should be very, very careful with not over-incentivizing or disincentivizing different kind of players. Uh, and that is, I think, very important going forward. The other area where I think business and uh, policymakers, but particularly governments, should work together better is really areas like grid capacity electrification. We do have over 150,000 chargers in, in the 30 countries where we're operational. But as we speak, we have hundreds of chargers that we cannot connect because there is no grid capacity available in that area. And in some instances, we are waiting as long as 18 months to two years, because somehow that thing is really lagging behind. Two areas I think we need to improve the game is the grid capacity. It's almost every country, so it's not country specific. And also, of course, which is another very important element for us, because we clearly would like uh, to achieve our target to be a net zero company by 2050, that also the electricity that we are supplying is more and more renewable energy based. Because in some of the markets, the electricity grid and the electricity production is not green. It's quite far from it. So, so we need to be working on that as well and incentivizing that it happens. Lizzie, would you agree with that? And are there any other challenges you'd anticipate? Isfan is making a very, very good point about the grid connection and the need for grid upgrades. All our CPOs are telling us this is the number one bottleneck for the deployment of EV charging infrastructure. Today, I'm talking about Europe. Isfan was you know, talking about delays of 18 months to two years. You have some markets in Europe where that can go up to three years to get your connection and permitting. So that's of course, is not acceptable in a context where you're trying to deploy as fast as possible. And of course, there's a cost associated to And I'm really curious to think about what we believe our roads will look like by 2050. Ingrid, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. What do you envisage? If I think ahead to 2050, I think that we won't give much more thought to driving electric and thinking about charging stations than we do now to driving on gasoline and pulling into a gas station. I think that through deliberate planning and innovation and organic growth that we're going to have chargers where we need them, when we need them, and we'll have a cleaner, more sustainable, equitable transportation system. Elizabeth, your thoughts on what you think the roads will look like in 2050? The idea is that by 2050, almost everything is going to be electrified on the roads. But I think, you know, I want to take this opportunity to mention kind of also the importance of reducing private vehicle ownership and moving kind of to this public and shared mobility as a way 
to help moderate electricity demand, the kind of you know challenges we're talking about with building out the grid and the charging infrastructure can really be addressed by kind of reducing the demand for electricity for transport in terms of you know using buses, right? And I think this will be really important for transport in the future. Lucy. The broader context is climate neutrality by mid-century, and that is now, as we firmly firm in the books, the immobility, which has become even more mainstream. It is becoming more mainstream today, but it would be so mainstream by 2050, we won't even notice it anymore. It would just be the new normal, greener, clearer road, and a brighter future for all of us. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Lucy. And Istvan, your thoughts about what the roads will look like by 2050? I agree with everybody who was uh, saying that uh, electric vehicles, whether it's uh, passenger cars or heavy-duty vehicles, will be playing a big part of uh, of the mobility system by 2050. And it has to be fraction-free and uh, easy to use. More and more uh, smart city solutions, more and more uh, ride-hailing, car-sharing activities we will be seeing, of course, in the future. But the one point, the last point I would make, it has to be in the context of 200 countries in the world, not only just, uh, you know, 40. And therefore, we need to be ready for different kind of solutions all around the world to cater for every customers in this mobility journey. Well, I have to say it's been a phenomenal conversation because in a really short period of time, we've thought about the ambition, we've thought about the infrastructure, the dynamics of delivering infrastructure. We've also thought about some of the challenges, some of the hurdles, clearly the opportunities there, what the future may hold. My thanks to Elizabeth Connolly, Lucy Matera, Ingrid Malmgren and Isfan Capitani. You've been listening to the Energy Podcast brought to you by Shell. Listen and follow for free wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Next time, we'll be discussing what role can oil and gas play in the energy transition. The Energy Podcast is a fresh air production and I must remind you that the views you've heard today from individuals not affiliated with Shell are their own and not Shell PLC or its affiliates. I'm Julia Streets. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.